This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, TVNZ announced some significant cuts to cut its cloth as costs go up, but ad revenue goes down. But there could be some good news from TVNZ that's overdue for Dunedin. Also, our biggest publisher of new stuff has got big challenges to its business and some unhappy employees. We'll ask the boss how she's handling that and what, if anything, they expect from the government these days. But first, the election campaign went up a gear this week as the party leaders lined up on live TV for the first time. Well, it's crunch time for Chris Hipkins heading into the first leaders' debate of the election campaign tonight. Labour is languishing in the polls. Last week's News Hub Read Research poll had Labour on 26.8% support, well below a resurgent National Party on 40.9%. That was Corin Dan getting morning report underway last Tuesday, the day of the first head-to-head Hipkins versus Luxon TV debate. In the same morning, News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking told his viewers he's hosted a few of those in the past, and this was one thing to look out for on that night. Uh, There will also be a poll tonight to set the scene. That poll will almost certainly be bad news for the government, which will almost certainly lead to the first question, something along the lines of, why are you doing so badly in the polls? But there was no new opinion poll preceding that debate. Mike Hosking was possibly thinking of the TVNZ poll due the next night. Now, as it turned out, that result wasn't any better for the Labour Party leader. But on Tuesday, Chris Hipkins told Corin Dan he was still looking forward to that first TV debate for this reason. One of the things about modern campaigns is you don't actually get very much time to talk about the issues, um, and it'll be a great opportunity for us to talk about the issues. But, oh no, it wouldn't, according to Labour-aligned lobbyist Neil Jones on RNZ's 9 to noon the day before. I think everyone thinks that they're they're mistaken. Um, I've been involved in debate prep for multiple leaders, and it's not some great intellectual discussion. A debate is a series of key messages and moments um, scripted and bounced off focus groups, and I think... Having these stronger arguments doesn't necessarily win the debate. And Nine to Noon's political panellists that morning all seem to agree that TV debates don't actually shift the dial much these days. That's bad news if true for the TV networks who've been hyping theirs up, including TVNZ's rivals at NewsHub. Its own Luxon-Hipkins head-to-head was still a week away, but Patrick Gower was hyping it up like this. The ultimate political face-off. It's Chris Hipkins versus Chris Luxon in an election-defining debate. It's the showdown of the campaign. You don't want to miss this. Now, all that might just have rubbed up the wrong way the leaders of our minor parties, who did have a live debate on the same channel on Thursday night, which NewsHub called the Power Brokers debate. And with the big red and blue parties only polling about 65% put together lately, the success or failure of those other parties in October really could define the election result. The Capital's Daily The Post was not so pumped about the first TVNZ Live debate. Under the front page headline, The Loser Effect, it said both leaders had more to lose than to gain on Tuesday. And the same day on the Herald's front page podcast, political editor Claire Trevette didn't seem too excited either about Tuesday's debate. I don't know if it's the most important debate of all time. It's, it's possibly not even in the top five. In the Herald, Claire Trevette said the polls in the public have shown a shrug of indifference to both Chris's, though if we're just not that into them, as she thought, that hasn't been mirrored by most political reporters who are still firmly fixated on those two party leaders. Trevette's own Herald, for example, has been handing out a Chris of the Week award each week, a contest that few other than political reporters and pundits could possibly care about. But for the upcoming debut debate on TV, Claire Trevette reckoned the mission for each Chris was this. 
Hipkins has to somehow persuade people Luxon is not cut out to be Prime Minister and try to reinflate his own standing with voters. All Luxon has to do is survive and not give people reason to believe he can't handle the top job. So, how did the media spectacle unfold on Tuesday? Former MP Tohenere, for example, was first cab off the rank on TVNZ1 after the debate when he was asked, who won? Um, nah, there's no winner, no loser. And after that, TVNZ's deputy political editor, Mikey Sherman, sat on the fence. It wasn't necessarily something that someone needed to win tonight. If I did have to, I mean, I do have to hang out with them on the campaign trail, so I I need to be careful here, guys. (laughs) ZB's Mike Hosking said that the winners were the viewers who gave the debate a miss, while his fellow host on Drive, Heather Duplessy-Allen, said that she wished she'd watched the whole thing on Fast Forward. While the Herald's Claire Trevette, not expecting a lot as we heard earlier, called it a snooze fest, and Herald columnist Steve Braunier said he searched in vain for an ounce of charisma among the blandness. But never mind charisma or drama, what about that contest of ideas or any new revelations? Well, there was not much there either, though Hipkins' claim to have banned fizzy drinks in schools went flat when he later had to concede that he hadn't, and Christopher Luxon sprang a surprise by announcing free lunches in schools, but next morning on Morning Report... However, Christopher Luxon told Morning Report he misspoke. What I meant by that was, um, you know, the targeted approach the government has today is something we'll continue with and continue to support. Now, on TVNZ's debate, Christopher Luxon also said twice every single health outcome for Māori and non-Māori has gone backwards. And that wasn't true, specifically for Māori, in several areas, as RNZ journalist Ella Stewart showed in a data-rich analysis on RNZ's website on Wednesday. But while that went unnoticed and unreported elsewhere after the debate, one vulnerability observers were looking out for was National's data-deficient tax plan. All month, political reporters have been screeching variations of show us your spreadsheets, including News Hub's Lloyd Burr. I see you've got a folder there on your lectern. Is that um, the Excel spreadsheet of your tax plan that you've printed out and you're ready to release? And Lloyd Burr seemed to take it personally when Christopher Luxon didn't deliver what he wanted during 20 minutes of talking to reporters that day. Cue his signature move, walking off. For the last two weeks, and I've watched this from afar, you walk away. When we've still got questions... We've still got... John Key would have post-cab for an hour and a half. No, he would not. He would. He'd an hour and a half, and then he'd go, all right, cheerio, folks, catch you later. Whereas you're, you're walking, and if you're going to be Prime Minister, you can't do this. Just flee to your Crown car. But Christopher Luxon could and did, and Lloyd Burr later told News Hub at Six Viewers he would probably keep on doing it. Yeah, he can, and I think he will, and it's going to make for a pretty long next month, isn't it? The Christopher Luxon clamming up on this key question did give Lloyd Burr a nice line for his report from that photo op on a sheep farm, Luxon's silence among the lambs. Well, Hayden Donnell took a look at that on Midweek Media Watch with Mark Leishman last Wednesday on Nights here on RNZ National. And that included a forensic accounting of all the mixed sporting metaphors deployed by the post-debate political panel of pundits going to go with the boxing analogy. Mm. Take the, 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 the football analogy again. He has to kick it out of the park. Mm. Chris Hipkins needed a knockout. I mean, it's a bit like Penrith versus Warriors. There was no up the wars moment. Hayden also took a look at the political leaders turning down invitations from Māori media. That's all in this week's Midweek Media Watch. If you missed it, it's available on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or for free wherever you get your podcasts. Now, such photo op antics prompted listener columnist Michelle Hewitson to conclude in this week's issue that politicians on the campaign trail are behaving as if they won lead roles in amateur dramatic productions in Tepuke. 
and she cited Long John Luxon dressed as a pirate the previous week, generating media images that she deemed cringeworthy. Likewise, Chris Hipkins the same day in Christchurch tickling a robot. But all these events are, of course, arranged by the political parties for the media's benefit. And in this campaign, the media are even staging their own events for yet more exposure for those party leaders. This week's listener, for example, carries posed portraits of them by Jane Usher, called Lens on the Leaders, though surely the magazine's upscale readership know full well what they all look like by now. And the Herald's Michael Nielsen has been playing pool with the party leaders for another campaign series in video. And RNZ's Charlotte Cook has been cooking with them on camera as well. Are you cleaning up? Uh, yeah, probably. After all the mess this government's left, probably cleaning up for three or six years. Clearly, many in the media didn't get Claire Trevette's memo about our limited appetite for the party leaders. Acts David Seymour there being grilled by RNZ's cook. Now on Thursday, David Seymour was out of the kitchen and into the pub for the News Hub Power Brokers debate alongside other minor party leaders, Marama Davidson of the Greens, Debbie Narewa Packer of Te Pāti Māori and New Zealand First's Winston Peters. And this was a spikier outdoors affair with insults, high fives and interjections from the beer garden audience. Rebecca, start doing your job. Winston, Winston. I'm on you, I'm on you because you've got an interesting idea. Hang on a second. I'm going to be like... Oh, look, Dave, you've had a chance. That's enough. These are the kind of changes we... There are adults in the room. Can I just say that... And there was plenty more of what the Herald's political editor, Claire Trevette, called relatively cordial but robust bickering. Two days earlier, the in-studio crowd of mostly media people was told to keep it down during the TBNZ Hipkins-Luxon debate, but this is what an election debate should look like, Claire Trevette said, when the dust had settled on NewsHub's one last Thursday. And while most pundits declared the first TV debate a dull draw, or a win by default for national leader Christopher Luxon, Claire Trevette said it was quite possible Christopher Luxon was actually the loser of NewsHub's minor parties leaders debate on Thursday, because she said what went down in the pub went some way towards illustrating Chris Hipkins' claim on Tuesday that David Seymour and Winston Peters would run rings around Luxon in a coalition government. Now that conclusion would be a tough one for the sporting analogy pundits to sum up in one soundbite. How many sports are there when you can emerge as a loser in a contest you're not actually competing in? Maybe only when media pundits are wargaming an election campaign. Last weekend here on Media Watch, we heard how New Zealand's biggest publisher of news, Stuff, is joining big global names in news and protecting its content from the generative AI app ChatGPT. And Stuff's owner Sinead Boucher had earlier warned members of the International News Media Association not to repeat the mistakes of the past by allowing big offshore tech companies free access to their content again. The likes of Google and Facebook have made much more money out of their content online over the past 20 years than the news media outfits which actually produced the news in the first place. Sinead Boucher is also the chair of the News Publishers Association, representing big and small non-broadcasting publishers of news here in New Zealand. And right now they are collectively pressing Google and Facebook's owner Meta for payment for their news. The Fair Digital News Bargaining Bill, recently introduced to Parliament by Broadcasting and Media Minister Willie Jackson, is designed to force the issue. If the bill becomes law, it may also apply to those AI services like ChatGPT, Microsoft's Bing Chat and Google's Bard. But if it doesn't become law, what then? 
Well, we'll ask Sinead Boucher about that in a minute and how her own company is currently coping in tight times for news media. But as we heard last week, generative AI is also a tool that news media are now using for journalism. Some are even calling it an editorial co-pilot these days. For example, when Sky TV appointed a new chief financial officer this week, the subscriber service Business Desk reported that Cara McGuigan will take up the role early next year. Business Desk's story said she has previous experience in media, telecoms and retail, and Sky's CEO, Sophie Maloney, said she was excited about McGuigan joining the team. And the author of that story was ChatGPT. Business Desk uses it to turn simple statements from the stock exchange into online stories, and pretty rapidly, as Business Desk publisher Mark Martel told an AUT conference on AI earlier this month. Uh, we process NZX announcements into articles, which used to take us a minimum of 30 minutes and now takes us under 30 seconds. Well, Business Desk is owned by the New Zealand Herald's publisher NZME, so how long before the machines are producing journalism at the Herald 2, or even creating content for the company's many radio networks? And even if she's determined to keep the chatbots away from her news at Stuff now, how might Sinead Boucher use the technology to create it at Stuff in the future, if it isn't already? This is a technology that is going to unlock um, changes in just about every industry, every facet of life. You know, It won't be too long before you and I, Colin, are able to have our own personal AI assistants, able to maybe manage some of the boring things in our lives and let us focus on the news. So everybody needs to get their head around how to harness the opportunities how that are available in our technology. Stuff? What, what is it doing? Then we've taken a really, look, we've instituted a really clear set of guidelines for it to be used. Uh, so we're very much at the experimentation. However, we look at potentially using a tool or experimental tool, there always has to be human in the loop, that these tools can be assistance, they can assist in research, or they can insist, assist in the creation of you know graphics and things like that. They can also uh, allow us to replace a lot of, say, repeatable internal processes with, you know, a, a a soft piece of software now. There's a, a vast array of the way we can use it. What about but we're also really careful um, that every time we plug something into, you know, a query or something into one of these tools, all of that data goes back to that. And so, we, we, so we're very um, hyper aware of introducing any cyber risk, any leak to our data or anything into the organisation. So we're taking kind of quite careful steps. What about the nuts and bolts of producing and printing newspapers? Are you already using or planning to AI tools to, to do that? And also the journalism. You know, And we know, for example, you had plans to reduce the number of people employed in that print production area, yeah, right? Look at the, um, so we have made a change to our print producing team recently. So the production of newspapers still a fairly manual process and um, we've you know we have a new publishing system part of which allows I wouldn't necessarily describe it as being in the generative AI space it's more of an automation of um, some of the aspects of laying out and producing a newspaper and that has been um, implemented a couple of over the last couple of months. And uh, do you see, like we heard Peter Hoare from the AUT on, on Media Watch say, like, you know, we hear people talk about AI now as almost a collaborative partner because it can suggest to you images, things that you might not have thought of before, and that's going beyond mere using a bit of software. 
But he said, nah, it's not. It's just like a handy butler that gives you what you want quite quickly when you are no, just a handy you know, butler. So we, for example, we don't use um, AI to write stories. For years, there have been, you have been able to, and lots of media organisations already do, use some form of machine learning or AI to produce stories out of concrete sets of data. For example... Uh, you know, text reports based on business company results or sport results and things like that. So mm. that's a labour-saving thing. There's no IP in that. There's no. Um, but you that's don't generic do. That. We don't. We don't do it. Mm. I wouldn't say that for for any reason particularly. We just don't do it yeah. at the moment. But lots of companies do. Um, so that's an assistant in some way because it allows the journalists to focus on um, stories that um, where human insight, human creativity, empathy, human connection, all of those things are really important. So I think you will see a lot um, more of that kind of thing come into news media where things that are just, um, you know, basically repeatable processes based off plain data sets, not, you know, what we would really think about as the work of journalism, the work of connecting with people, interviewing people, being curious. That's not the kind of stuff that, um, you know, I don't think that's the role of working with technology. That's the role of getting out into your community and, you know, really connecting with the people you're there to serve. And I guess there's another element where AI, these apps uh, and the technology, generative technology, where they intersect with journalism is just, it's it's a challenge to report all this, right? So the likes of Bloomberg, the Financial Times overseas have dedicated AI reporters. That's the beat. That's the round. Yeah. Um, I've seen, for example, some of the reporting of this can be a bit shoddy. There was an RNZ story, in fact, about... AI will predict your, which of your employees might quit within six months. That RNZ story went right through the media because of RNZ's copy share. It was on staff, it was on a whole, and it wasn't based on an awful lot. Yeah. And it really was not the headline almost everybody put on it. Is that sort of thing what we've got to be wary of as editors oh, and readers? You know? look, absolutely. And look, we ourselves have, you know, I know one of our writers in the advertising field used AI to help research a story they were produced and it put in an error and mm. that wasn't picked up. It was not a terrible error, it was just a mistake. We are using these tools to help us or to help research or to but every you day know, do we're... things then. We still must make sure the human in the loop is doing their job properly and not sort of somehow just assuming everything that comes back is going to be correct. Almost quite literally every day there is a story about an AI advance, what it can do in New Zealand's news media. Uh, do we have the expertise amongst our reporting staff to actually weed out the stories that oh, look, really I, I don't, say, make, don't make I'd the I'd have cut? to say no and only because this is so emergent. That's a bit of that early Wild West kind of era where everyone is really trying to get their head around what um, this means. And look, you know, a, a couple of months ago, I stepped back from the chief executive role and have taken on more of a sort of, you know, what I, I want to focus on being the publisher and the owner. And a big part of what I had been looking forward to for that is to really um, spend the time educating myself to start to think about how we're going to learn about this so we can do our job properly on reporting on it, on our jobs, our industries. And debunk the claims about the stuff that really won't have those That's right. Yet. But I also think um, we really need to upskill ourselves. Probably so does everybody need to learn. I think this is going to be a big challenge for 
the incoming government, whoever they are, think about that in terms of legislation and all sorts of ways, copyright, all sorts of things, what it means for the future of work, what it means for all sorts of th- all sorts of things in our life. Now you mentioned there the next government, whatever it happens to be, uh, if it's a blue tinged lead one, uh, they may not be interested in progressing the fair digital news bargaining bill, which is before Parliament. Are you concerned that this bill won't go anywhere if the government changes? Well, look, I think, you know, we we support the intent of the bill, obviously, which is to provide, you know, that level playing field or that environment where you can have a commercial discussion in a, in a, in a situation where there is a vast power imbalance there. And so I hope the incoming government, whoever they are, if whatever tinge they have this, that they will see that as the intent of it. What it is not is a tax on tech companies or a way of breaking the internet, all of this kind of rhetoric that you hear um, coming from those who um, who dismiss this kind of bill. It's simply a way, a framework of addressing a bargaining power imbalance. Then it's still incumbent on the parties to agree a term there. And I think, again, you know, we have been really um, pleased with the way we've been able to work with Google up to now and in, in terms of the industry and um, arranging deals that sort of give us some security over um, payment uh, and use of our content now in different ways. So they have engaged with you properly on that? Oh, yes. Yeah. Look, I think that's – and that is a consequence of us, you know, being able to um, – have a negotiation through the News Publishers Association as a collective. Meta, for example, just won't come to the table. Form these platforms have uh, news content on there all the time, every mm. day, and they and again they grow their advertising business around that. So, and I think again, Meta is putting a huge amount of focus into its own large language models, training its own AI tools and producing its own products. You know, where will that go? Um, at OpenAI and Microsoft, again, not some, someone we have spoken to really in terms of content deals before, but a massive player in the space. So we need to be able to get some of these organisations to the table for these discussions, and the legislation is how we do it. We also need this so that the taxpayer is not having to subsidise journalism um, in the way that they have done in previous years. We do not want taxpayers subsidising the work we produce. We want to be independent. We want to be thriving businesses in our own right and able to produce uh, the kind of journalism we want to every day. Yeah, one reason the government put up the bill uh, was because it indicated that it's not going to restart that public interest journalism fund. That ran from 2020 to 2023. What do you think the government is obliged to do for privately owned media? Actually, I think what the government is obliged to do is to think about the trading environment for New Zealand businesses and New Zealand industries and whether it's fair. My mind goes back to late 2018. Chris Farfoy became the Minister of Broadcasting and I think his first... You may have even been there. It was a a journalism educators conference and I was he said, there. <laughs> right. And he had clearly been convinced there was a real threat to major news media providers that some of them might go under and they needed to be uh, supported. It seemed like he, he was convinced and he was comfortable with public money going to privately owned media that previously hadn't had this sort of investment. If there's a change of government that that won't exist. Do you really depend on getting revenue from these big tech platforms? I can't speak for all companies, but as part of the News Publish Association, I'm the chair of that organisation now. This is a material, a really material issue for all of them. 
sometimes there's a sort of sense that um, there's something different in here because it's journalism or that if we get a payment from a tech company, we should everyone should have to invest it in journalism. This is actually just a pure um, business and operating But does that business yeah. now depend upon that stream I of I think revenue? there is no black and white um, answer to that because there are dozens of businesses in this country who all have different business models and different sources of revenue. But for all of them, I would say it's really material. And yes, I would say for some of it, it does depend on that. And getting those payments secured recently from Google has been transformative. If you, you referred earlier to Australian, the legislation there, um, which has secured north of $250 million a year in payment to those um, news to news organisations, big and small. You know some of the things that are really that's um, in Australia. That's Australia. Say, yeah. Yes, Australia. It has been transformative. Like I can't overstate how transformative that has been for securing the future of journalism in that country. The investments that have gone into newsrooms, the increase in the number of journalists, that you know the new products, the new business has been transformative. We're all minnows against the the tech companies. We haven't necessarily got the wherewithal ourselves to go in to fight for our own deals and, and to secure fair payment for our content. Well, the other critical revenue stream, obviously, is advertising. That's hard to get these days. You can see, I think, in some stuff papers, it will be right down to the local free sheets. A lot of the ads are for stuff itself, right? So that space, I presume, that's not, or, or stuff products, it's stuff that's uh, spaces that's not being filled. It's difficult. Another form of advertising is the sponsored content. Now, recently, TVNZ copped a lot of the flack. Uh, There's a bit of controversy over um, the Energy Efficiency and Conservation Authority buying space, so there was airtime on TVNZ that possibly wasn't labelled as uh, you know a product of a paid partnership, as they called it. Stuff also got a six-figure sum to produce that content. Um, TVNZ's now re-looking at their policy about how they increase transparency. Does stuff need to do this as well if you're doing these sorts of partnerships that yeah, people look, don't I think, necessarily I think know we, are, we have had very different approach already from TVNZ or anywhere else. We already have a really clear set of guidelines. Um, and, you know, number one for us is never try and fool the audience into thinking something is one thing when it's actually another thing. Actually, those so, guidelines are online for everyone yeah. to see, and they're quite extensive. Yeah, they're yeah. really extensive. We treat this really seriously. That is, we, we do not try and present anything pretending it's the editorial story or it's, you know, just something we've covered if it's something that someone has paid us for. So whenever we create content, which we also really, you know, ensure we make as interesting and engaging and, and all the rest of it, but it is really clearly labelled that this is sponsored content or, you know, whatever sort of... Um, it's provided by someone or it's sponsored by someone or what have you. So, and, and do you put yeah. your journalists on that? So if Beef and Lamb or something wants to do a set of articles that will be labelled as sponsored content, will you have you we know, some have of We have a team of um, writers and content creators who specifically work on uh, content for our advertising partners. Okay, yeah. so that wouldn't include, so someone would be attending a Fonterra press conference and writing that up for a legit news story that, as pure news. That won't be the same person that who definitely is next not week. That right. definitely does not happen. Sean Plunkett, uh, with his own outlet now, The Platform, uh, he recently suggested uh, there are rumours, he said, but he didn't say from where, but that stuff is essentially underwritten, in his words, uh, by Naitahu. For some strange reason, and there's even the rumour going around that stuff are essentially underwritten by Naitahu. 
which is why they went all woke and went all critical race theory. Any financial relationship with Naitahu? Uh, Sean, I think, um, so no, okay. we don't have any financial relationship with Naitahu. When um, this is something that is continues to be thrown up by certain parties um, ever since, you know, I bought the company. I bought the company for a dollar. It is what it is. I do not have any other funders, secret backers, but there is, I feel like there is a certain group of men who present this in a way that she couldn't possibly have done this herself. Who are the real people standing in behind her? I find there's a bit of a whiff of sexism in behind that, as well as just a stirring the pot. And I do find it ironic that Sean Plunkett, of all people, who um, is entirely you know, funded by uh, rich listers who really want to shape uh, the news agenda in lots of ways, tries to throw stones at others. But there's zero truth to it. As for us, you know, going all woke and critical race theory, that's not how we describe ourselves. Our job as the biggest news organisation in New Zealand is to make sure we are producing work that reflects the values and interests of the mass community here. All of our products put together reach three and a half million people in New Zealand and that is because we are really focused on delivering what New Zealanders are interested in, what's relevant to them, how they see their society reflecting. So, And you're doing all this with the company you bought from Australia for one dollar uh, with what you can attract in terms of revenue and what you might have in the bank. No, absolute, no foundation look, invest or anything like look, that. Look, the, um, the opportunity to buy stuff, a moment in time it was in completely unique to that specific moment where Nine bought Fairfax Media in Australia, which we were owned by. We were like the free steak knives with purchase. They had no interest in a New Zealand business or a lot of the other ones. You know, we were tiny little business. They basically wrote off the value of us in the in the de- day they did that deal. We were always going to be divested. And then as they started to realise that it may not have been as easy as, um, you know, like the NZME merger, for example, the competitive landscape wasn't uh, such that they could easily just sell us to um, a competitor here. Um, there is that coupled with the arrival of COVID, New Zealand going into a basically a hard lockdown very early. It was right at that time, at wasn't it? At that yeah. time. It was, and it was because of this that they thought, oh my God, we just need to get out of New Zealand. We want to retrench everything back into Australia. We were earning our own way. We're paying our own bills. We're profitable. We're not, we weren't leaning on the mothership for anything. Um, but they, it was just for them. We don't know what's going to happen in this pandemic. Let's just get out of there before turns to custard in New Zealand, which I think they really believed was what was going to happen as a result of the hard lockdown we went in. So, so here, here we are three and a half years later. Yeah, well, three and a half yeah. years later, you are still the the, the, the owner, uh, the boss. You've Myself had make... and um, 10% of the company is put in, has been put into the staff trust. You've had to make difficult decisions in that time. Um, I mean, remember last year doing interviews about Deep unhappiness, some of the staff, there was even walking off the job at some point. You have had to cut some jobs and shrink uh, the way, or some of the regional newsrooms, the way news is gathered. And I mean, some people do tell us there is anxiety, there is worry amongst particularly the journalists, the news part of the business about the future. And do you have the staff on side for what you're doing with this new four executive tier with you as publisher that you're taking in the future? I would say we've gone through a lot of change over the last several years, as has any other media company, and we will continue to have to to adapt 
and you know thrive, I guess, and grow and be sustainable in the changing world. And we've just spent the morning talking about some of those big changes. You know, that arrival of generative AI is the next massive dis- digital disruption. You well, know what, that we what, have to deal with. So we will continue to have to change. Of course, that is really unsettling for people in the business and we always do our best to try and be really transparent about what we're doing and why we're doing it. We also are really transparent about the fact that we are not going to stay the same. We can't stay the same. No business can stay the same. Um, I think that sort of nervousness, um, you would probably find that in all of the media companies here at the moment. Perhaps not Radio New Zealand, which doesn't have that same commercial operating view. But everybody uh, is making some form of change, whether it's to adapt to what's a pretty tough market out there at the moment or to start to think about how we're going to have to harness technology or really adapt what we're doing to meet the sort of changing um, you know, needs of customers. But what they specifically tell us about stuff, because I accept what you're saying, all media companies changing and tech is driving that and all of that. But what they specifically say is that... Um, that the company's top brass have talked about the importance of news and content um, uh, and, and local journalism particularly a lot in public, but in, in the company it, they don't feel like it's the top priority for in the way that decisions are oh, made. I would, I would completely disagree with that. And look, I think there is always, um, you know, I don't want to diminish how people are feeling. I think any period of change, especially in a tough market, is really unsettling for people when their livelihoods and their careers and everything are bound up in that. I've been through all of those cycles myself as a journalist. It has been journalism and media for the last 25 years has been in some sort of cycle or other like that. But, you know, if you think about um, we have organised ourselves into uh, Stuff Digital, mm-hmm. which is um, stuff.co.nz and Nably, and our masthead publishing, that's all of our news mastheads, uh, the subscriber products. Those businesses are headed by journalists. Um, journalism is what we do. It's our purpose. You know, it's what we think about, talk about every day. But nobody can ignore the realities of a changing market, changing consumer needs, all of those things. I think what we say to the, the journalists, you know, the best thing you can do is really pay attention yourselves to what your customers really need and want from us. And as long as we're doing a really good job with that, we have the best possible chance. But we will continue to change. We will need to continue to change. What some of them are literally saying is things like somehow the Simon Bridges podcast seems to me more important than viability of regional and staffing of regional news organisations, things like that. I think that is a really odd comparison to make. We have an audio division into our business. I'm sure I don't have to tell you, Colin, how popular audio and podcasts are with readers. And for us, it's great. We have the scale, huge digital audience and a huge print audience. And so, yes, we've got Simon Bridges, who is a masterful interviewer, I should say, and does incredible podcasts. We also have podcasts created by our own journalists. Some of those have been not only number one in New Zealand, but number one in the Apple Store around the world. The Commune, you know, Black Hands, all these, they are created by our journalists doing investigative work. It's mischievous to try and say it's one thing or the other. We are always trying to adapt to what consumers want. It's not in we're doing regions or we're doing audio. We are wanting to serve people with great journalism content in whatever formats, wherever they are. But we also have to realise that consumer 
wants and needs changing too, so we have to adapt to produce our work while there's a demand for it. That was Sinead Boucher, the executive chair and publisher of our biggest publisher of news, Stuff. Last Monday, TBNZ told its staff that significant cuts were on the way because advertisers aren't spending as much and the broadcaster would have to cut its cloth accordingly to balance its books this year and next. And TBNZ's not the only commercial media company with costs going up and revenue going the other way, but as the biggest player in the media market for ads, it's also the most exposed. This week, TBNZ wouldn't tell RNZ how much it's seeking to save or how big the cuts to budgets will have to be, but it did tell the staff those cuts will run right across the company into content production, programs and operational spending have been reduced, future projects are under review and top earners' pay has been frozen. And you can read all about that on the MediaWatch page of the RNZ website. Now, at TVNZ, some recruitment is also being frozen or deferred as part of this cost-saving plan, and that could be a worry for Dunedin. Back in 2015, TVNZ decided not to replace the long-serving Dunedin reporter Megan Martin, prompting howls of outrage from mayors around the Otago region. They reckoned their huge and important part of the country could virtually vanish from TVNZ's national news, and it prompted a rethink after which TVNZ retained a part-time reporting role and one for a camera operator in Dunedin. But NewsHub then closed its bureau, laying off reporter Dave Gooselink two years ago, And in April this year, TVNZ's current Dunedin reporter Maddie Lloyd left to join a PR firm in Christchurch. Now at that time, staff reporter in Dunedin Hamish McNeely asked TVNZ what was the plan to replace Maddie Lloyd, and he got this response from TVNZ. We're looking at what resource we'll add to this bureau and we'll announce any appointments when they've been made. In the meantime, Dunedin will be supported by our Queenstown and Christchurch reporters. Well, that's not ideal, clearly, as both places are not exactly just down the road. Now, five months on from that, no appointment has yet been made for TVNZ in Dunedin. And in his recent Substack newsletter, Hamish McNeely looked back at the Dunedin news that had been reported on the onenews.co.nz website in recent months, and he found there wasn't much of it. For example, when Dunedin's deputy mayor quit the role late one night last week, it got a brief mention on TVNZ's breakfast show the next day, Dunedin's deputy mayor has reportedly resigned, citing difficulties working with the mayor. Sophie Barker was appointed the role by Mayor Jules Radisich in October after first becoming a councillor in 2019. It's understood she's resigned, saying a breach of a confidential council meeting last month was, quote, the final straw. But there was no reporter on breakfast to talk about that, and then nothing at all about that story on One News at Six that night. So does the TVNZ recruitment pause announced earlier this week mean that Dunedin will remain a TVNZ news black spot? Well, apparently not. This week, TVNZ finally advertised for a permanent full-time video journalist in Dunedin to report on news stories from the city and the surrounding region. Now, among the expected attributes for the journalist listed in the job description are the desired tertiary journalism qualification, which is pretty standard these days, but candidates are also required to develop and effectively contribute to ongoing cost-saving initiatives. Not what most journalists train for, but a sign of the times these days in our media. Well, that's all we have for you on the media this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media after the 10pm news next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch on nights. And then back again at the same time next weekend, here with more Media Watch on RNZ National.